At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at Keely Companies. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. When today's guest was just 24 years old, he found himself at a mighty crossroad. He had been recruited into the United States Army and had spent the last several years being wired for war. He served as an officer and as a medic. But once wired for war, nobody prepared him to be rewired for peace, for life. Stepping into the unknown without any support, Stefan Wolfert's lifetime of grief and trauma became simply overwhelming. And then he had an experience that changed his life. He was drunk and he was suicidal and he wandered into a random building that ultimately would positively change his life. You ready for the room? A theater. He had been profoundly moved that day in a theater production of Richard III. He began to recognize himself as a misfit, just like the main character. And then Stefan began examining Shakespeare from a military veteran's perspective. He started working with fellow military veterans and scientists using Shakespeare's test and then a classical actor's training to heal trauma in order to aid the transition from military service back into our lives as civilians. He started realizing that memorizing lines and breath work and sharing that experience on the stage was a powerful way to reduce PTSD, not only for himself, but also in others. The military did a terrific job of recruiting him to serve, and Stefan desired to do an even better job decruiting himself and then others into a life of serving. Today, we are joined by not only an incredible actor, not only a wonderful veteran, but we're joined by an awesome human being. Today, Stefan is going to share his powerful story to broaden our understanding of PTSD and other mental health challenges faced by our veterans and our overall larger community and how the mighty work he does through his organization called Decruit. You're going to learn about that organization. You're going to learn about this person. You're going to learn about what it means for you in your life. So here's the, uh, here's the challenge right now. You ready? The curtain is about to be drawn back. The lights are beginning to go bright. We're about to enter onto the stage, and I'd like you to give a loud, warm, roaring ovation to one of my friends. He's about to be yours. His name is Stefan Wolfert. Stefan, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thanks for having me, 
Truly. Well, man, I, I've got a, a guy I look up to on the program today. So for the folks who may not yet fully know who you are or why O'Leary looks up to you, if they were to randomly bump into you in a grocery store somewhere and ask you what you did for a living, how would you respond? Oof. I would respond, I've tried to do no harm and undo the harm I've done. <laughs> so isn't it an easier when someone says I'm a lawyer? Or just like yeah. tell you their occupation yeah. rather than it, the complexity of I try to do no harm and undo the harm that I've done. Yeah. Now we've got to ask the question, tell me more. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Well, that's that's partly partly why. I mean, the first part is just it's just true. I, I think there's so much tied up in our identity that links to the work that you talk about so beautifully and the work that I work on now, and including the work I did before. I, I left the army to become a classical actor. In classical actor training, I found it help, helping me with the stuff that I was yet to have diagnosed, all the alphabets, all the letters behind my name, um, and finding others finding the same. And this is before these two wars. Right. And so then I created, it ended up evolving into a program. Um, and so then the question was always, what do you do? Well, um, do I say I'm an actor? And there's a great deal of shame in this country with that. In America, I've had, I've had people say nasty things like, I, or, I, let me rephrase nasty, things they think are, I'm sure they think are charming, but they're hurtful, you know, to say, oh, what restaurant do you work at? And in those kinds of lines, not knowing that, you know, we, we, for us, this is, it's not just our livelihood. This is something deep within us that we have to do. We're, the, and the art hurts. It costs us. So when you make light of it, we're usually trying to work through something ourselves and for other people. Theater has lost its, 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 its power, its umph, its regard. It's being held as a respectful art form. So I even battled with that for 20 years. I've rarely said, I had to know who I was talking to before I said actor. Now I've been doing Decruit, this work that I do for veterans. And I, I didn't know what to call myself. And most of the time I'm like, you know what? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and it's upsetting and it's tied into the trauma as a matter of fact. Well, let's go through the I don't know and the hurts and the hurts of others and what you're trying to do to redeem both through your work today. Mm. Our childhoods are almost like exact opposites. Mm -hmm. I, I had the most caring, loving, safe home, five siblings who were doting on me, mm. parents who were around and just loving, man. It was an awesome, idyllic, annoyingly good childhood. <laughs> I'm Yours was a little different. Yeah. So I'd like you to share to the degree you're comfortable some of the experiences that you had growing up. Yeah. And, I, and of course, I'm going to give the caveat of, of oh. this is from my perspective, you know, my, my, my childhood. And, it, and this, this also changes. This is what happens as we heal trauma. Things begin, they have a different frame as we grow, as our post-traumatic stress growth happens, that lens changes as well. So it's clearly through through my eyes. But um, but I share it so that we're honest about it, so that others feel empowered, to be honest, because it's really hard. It's really hard to, to say that I didn't have an idyllic. I mean, most of the times when we get in the room, the vast majority of the time, folks don't come in saying, oh, you know, I had a, a tough childhood. Most of the time they come in and say, my parents were great or they did the best they could or you know any other caveats and of course they did because they were carrying their own trauma they were trying to do the best they could given everything they were carrying so there's a thing called ACE scores um, adverse childhood experiences and um, it's a 10 point you can find it online and I really love sharing this with people because 
so often people go, no, 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 it was great. And then if you score four or higher on this thing, even three or higher, you're getting to the realm of A scores that have an effect on the rest of your life. And they're not locked up in a closet and in, in, in tortured. It doesn't have to be that. It's were either of your parents not present, whether it was physically just there was one not there or or, or were they psychologically not available because of postpartum depress uh, depression or addiction or intimate partner violence, which is more of a broader term, including domestic violence. You know, things like that. Was one of your parents addicted or battling addiction? Were one of your parents did they scream at you or curse at you? Did they hit you? So this is, it, you know, it, almost from my generation, it seems like, well, that bar is really, really, you know, I mean, for my, in my era, you got a good crack on the face and you deserved it. You know, the, this sort of different mindset, not realizing that, no, 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 this actually has an adverse effect on the rest of it, not just the child, but the child's development into an adult and has a long-term effect on your health. People with uh, ACE scores of seven or higher are expected to live 20 years shorter. Um, I mean, all of this is online. If you begin looking at ACE scores, it, it's long-term developmental and health effects um, that are in internal and external. So yeah, I had a family that my siblings were older. I was in accident. It was a Catholic family. Um, my view, point of view, this is my point of view, not theirs. It was, there was a resentment. I feel like I, I felt resented. Like I, I didn't, I didn't never mm. felt I belonged. And when I did, I felt I was either to be of service or the subject of abuse. And that abuse came in many, many forms, um, from physical and violent and other. With that, this is happening from ages, you know, from infancy through age five and eight, key development uh, mental eras. And then there was very little structure. And now in some ways I loved that because we were very rural and I kind of created my own life. But, but at the same time, that left, that left me without certain developmental skills. It left me without... Um, the kind of connections that I see others have with their siblings, with their parents. And where my siblings may have a different opinion of what my childhood was, for me, that's where it came. That's where I, that's the environment under which I was developing, formulating the way I view the world, others, and myself in terms of safety. And I didn't have it. So I was hypervigilant before I went into the military. I had insomnia before I went into the military. I had a lot of these things. I didn't know this, but I had a lot of stuff before I went in. I mean, normally right now we spend even more time, I do, unpacking childhood and what led you through middle school and high school. And we talk about wrestling and yeah. we may talk about your wrestling injury and the broken yeah. back and a million other things you went through. But you went through the trauma that you just referenced, and you went through an awful lot more that you're not. I just yeah. want our listeners to know that an awful lot of other things went on that we're just not going to be talking about today, but it's part of the story. Yeah. Then, then you enlist. Why? Why, why the Army? Wow. That's another one that's like, there's so much to unpack there. Um, keep in mind, it's 1985, 86. 86 is when I ultimately did go in. I was looking at it from 85. This is a decade after Vietnam. This is the year or year after the Top Gun, the first one comes out. So the Navy's full, the Navy's held in high regard. It's got cool movies and the army has stripes. You know, it's got Bill Murray making fun of the army. It's got, it's, that's where the army was at. And because of my back injury, and you alluded to it, I, I uh, in my freshman year in high school, I was body slammed uh, in wrestling practice and was paralyzed. 
and the paralysis, I couldn't fully recover from it. I would recover a bit and bounce back and go back and forth for about two and a half years. And as a result, the other branches wouldn't touch me. I also mm. missed a lot of school. I had a horrible GPA. You know, I wasn't attractive to any branches that had um, high standards, frankly, at the time. And so the army- It's a public service announcement for the United States <laughs> Army going on right here. Right. Take one, at the time, they're like, do you have a pulse? Excellent. <laughs> step one of three complete. So I, yeah, but I did want to join the army. There was something particular about it, but, but, but when it really gets down to it in hindsight, now that I, you know, I look back and I hear stories from veterans for the past 30 years, almost, I was doing what most of us do, which is I was fleeing my hometown, my family, my community. I was also attracted to the military because of all the things that the ACE scores left me with. Um, the military is advertising all the things that 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 I didn't have structure, um, support, camaraderie, community, um, a plan, a, a, an opportunity to be a part of something bigger than myself. And, and I would love to tell you, oh, it was because, you know, it's all about America and Ronald Reagan had inspired me and made me want to maybe sure, you know, it seemed like it at the time, but re really when when i get down in there when i really and i have been it's i was fleeing it offered it seemed to offer things that i needed and it was one of the only ways i could get out of my hometown we were mm. poor i was poor i i i couldn't take you know a gap year and go to europe and and hitchhike or or backpack or hang out in a hostel in spain i had to work i had to work to to eat to live um you know just to get by and so the army was a way out for me well, it becomes your new home. It becomes your home for almost a decade. And we could spend a lot of time on some of the experiences within that decade. But there's there's many monumental ones and inflection points. But clearly, mm -hmm. a training exercise mm -hmm. with your buddy Marcus. Yeah. Would you, would you take us back to that day? Yeah. And I think, I think it's important that what sandwiches around it at the same time as well. I'll, I'll share the story. Um, and, and, but it, it's not, it, it's like so many things. It's not just one thing that broke me. It was my friend, it was beginning to question the military's mission, to begin to um, really learn things about America that I had didn't know previously. Domestic policy, foreign policy, racism, all of it. I'm becoming more aware because I grew up in this, you know, what I didn't realize, but fairly insulated bubble of, and, and that began eroding really quickly in the military. So it wasn't just this one event. And then I'm seeing some of my buddies coming back, someone from a friend from First Cavalry who had to, uh, I'm, you know, activation warning, I'm going to give in something in detail from First Gulf War, where he had shared that I'm not giving any way uh, details for, for security, but they had to get to a specific location and they were told they had this timeline and they could barely make it going almost full tilt in the vehicles, armored vehicles they were in. So they were told, do not stop. Well, they were surrendering by the hundreds and thousands. So they had to drive over people. They literally could not stop and had to keep pushing. This haunted him. This wasn't action. He was in a fair amount of action. The action isn't what haunted him. It was that action, that one, the non-armed conflict parts and bits. So that stuck with me and that matters. So then First Gulf War happens. Then I, um, I had trained. I had trained in literally everything except desert warfare. So after the first Gulf War, the army's like, we need to get you trained up in that. So they send me to the National Training Center in California, and there, among other things, uh, a friend of mine was killed in training, and and I was there, and it was uh, first person, and 
and it was in training. And so, and what, what one of the moments that leap out is there's a line when we're handing the flag over uh, mm. to the loved ones that says, accept this token of appreciation, this flag, as a token of appreciation for your loved one's faithful and honorable service. And it stuck with me because that honor, that word honor, and it, was, and it was really deeply affecting me. I wasn't aware of it at the time until that moment when I realized, where's the honor in this? He was killed in training. He, it shouldn't have happened. There was someone on the gun that wasn't qualified. They did it to try and rush things through. And, and then shortly after that, I had a soldier, again, activation warning uh, regarding suicide. I had a soldier take his own life and I was in his letter. We use the word reprimand. I, I, I mean, I, I chewed his ass. I learned from the best. You know, there was something he did wrong and I disproportionately responded because I had all my stuff going on and I berated him and I hammered him and he uh, felt that uh, he had let me down, wrote a note and took his own life. And, um, and those things f the finalized my, my break. I left, I technically went AWOL. I was lucky enough to where I had a platoon sergeant and a top sergeant who were Vietnam veteran, uh, veterans of the war in Vietnam. They knew what was going on. They covered for me. They helped, they helped take care of me until I could get to a place to where I was able to either receive care or make some decisions. And my decision was ultimately to, uh, to leave the military. And I was career. I was going, I, was, yeah. uh, I had accepted a 20-year commission and then balked at it, then got another one. And now I'm on a 20-year track. And in doing the stuff that I dreamed about doing most, I was airborne, air assault, infantry, going to ranger school, hoping to go to special forces, uh, Q course eventually. And, and I was killing it. I was doing really well. I was, I was you know, uh, number one graduate my company basic honors at AIT honors I was top three percent of my graduating my commissioning class you know I was on I was in line for like golden boy status uh, of some sort and it just brought I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't do it and it was really hard I carried a lot of shame and still some but for probably 17 to 19 years I carried deep deep shame about that about leaving you leave and literally on a one-way train to Whitefish, Montana? Yeah, I'd gotten a rail pass and Amtrak had this thing where you could go from like Chicago across the Dakotas in Montana, up into Washington, then down the coast. And then you eventually go over to Arizona and come back to Chicago. So I was in it, there's no time limit or something like a month. You can hop on and off as you need. But I hopped off in Whitefish just because it was so beautiful. It was, I'd never seen anything like it. I just, I didn't even know where the hell I was and I hopped off, yeah. and. Uh, and I ended up cruising around and, but ultimately I was on a bender. I mean, I was drunk 24. I, I had to turn my amygdala off. So I was carrying with me, besides my rucksack, a cooler that constantly had um, at least a six pack, if not a 12 pack of beer, a loaf of bread and peanut butter so that I could just keep my nutrition going. And I just restocked it and lived off that thing for weeks. And in all places, Whitefish is where yeah. this is going to begin to change. You yeah. you stumble into a theater home, and, yeah. and what what happens there? I saw Richard the Third, Shakespeare's Richard the Third. Now this is a guy who didn't grow up with theater, didn't go to theater, certainly never Shakespeare. Don't recall if I'd ever had to read it in school, and if I did, I'd blocked it out. It, it, it just I don't how I why, how or why I have no idea, but 
it, it, I had a full-blown catharsis. Mm. It's a, it, it, if for anyone who doesn't know Shakespeare's Richard III, a milit at the very top of the play, a military veteran walks out all alone in uniform, looks directly at the audience and says, we're at peace. We're in a time when there's you know, parties and parades and flyovers, but I'm not built for peace. The only thing I know is the military. The only thing I'm good at is making war. The only thing I understand is how to convert my emotions into violence or into a physical acts at least. So where do I fit in? What do I do with all this? Who am I now? And keeping in mind that I deep inside knew I was broken and not going. Let me rephrase. I shouldn't say broken. I wasn't going back. Unconsciously, I knew that. Even if I thought maybe there was a chance. I recognized me on stage. I saw this guy. I heard what he said. It was also this, you know, now I, we know iambic pentameter. This ba-bum, 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 breath. Ba-bum, ba-bum. There's a rhythm to it, a rhythmicity that I fell into. There's a heightened poetry to it where he's using words that I don't know what the hell they mean, but I know how they made me feel. Do you know what I mean? They made me think and feel something. They made me respond. It wasn't, into, it wasn't an intellectual exercise. It wasn't a cognitive thing. It was a body thing that happened mm. to me. And I was heaving, sobbing. I was weeping before he's even done. I didn't know you could have emotions publicly. You know, I grew up in Irish Catholic in La Crosse, Wisconsin on the north side where you don't show your feelings. It's boom, stoicism. And you clamp down on these molars and you don't let anything flow. And I'm ha it's just releasing in me. I'm having full-blown, like I'm shivering, everything, sweating, having a full-blown catharsis. And that was it. I'm like, I want to do that. I want to go, I'm going to leave the army, go back to school. And I want to do, I want to learn about that guy, that play and do that kind of work. And so I did. What a night. <laughs> yeah. What a transformational night. So you, yeah. you commit to doing this kind of work, but it's yeah. not that easy. No, you got your peanut butter, bread and an empty 11 pack in your cooler. <laughs> and you got to get back on the train and yeah. you got to figure out where do I do this kind of work and who, how do I pay the rent and a million other questions that you got to deal with in real time? Yeah. So take us forward from that point. I ended up moving to Whitefish and I spent two years there being you know, just snowboarding. Frankly, I worked night job. I did whatever job uh, they would, someone would give me to pay. I couch surfed. I lived out of my vehicle a bit. Uh, I, you know, rent occasionally here and there for a month when it was really cold. Um, worked at some places and, and mostly snowboarded. And I have to say it helped. It was, it was a, I had a, deep connection to nature every single day for two years. I had a connection when I needed to people who were like-minded in that way. They weren't veterans, but they were, um, there's 13 inches of powder tomorrow. <laughs> Let's do our jobs, get some sleep and meet at this time, right? It was very in the moment kind of work, which helped, I think. I think it was a helpful transition. But in that time, I'm applying to grad schools. I'm learning what do they need. I'm taking acting classes as I can. And I get accepted I, un, unbelievably to, by um, these two guys, Brian McElhaney and Steve Baron, Stephen Berenson at Trinity Rep, which is now with Brown University. At the time, it was with Rhode Island College. When I went, Brown, they would never accept me now, I don't think. Um, but they took me. They took, I, I had done a play by that point. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And they're like, yeah, we, but you have life experience. You've lived you're clearly in near crisis. Um, you're perfect. Come. And so I, I, I went and what I was observing was that there were, first of all, there are great similarities between the military and theater that I had not anticipated. 
there was also, they were giving me skills. There was most of which I was able to quickly translate because there was the closeness of the military to navigate when I would get out of self-regulation, very broad term for when my PTSD would activate, when my ADHD would activate, when any one of, like I said, my alphabet soup begins to hijack my experience, my being in the moment, my work. The, the military and theater both gave me tools of grounding, breathing, we call it mindfulness today, but breathing exercises, community, each other, and the language with which to articulate what's going on with me and some place to aim all of my focus, to redirect all of my energy instead of the internal blank committee that's giving me all these negative yes. uh, line uh, feedback about myself. Instead, I can re-aim it at my job, at what I'm supposed to do. And it helped me at least turn down the volume on that committee. It helped me redirect my energy towards something of use. It helped me stay in self-regulation. And some several classmates shared the same thing. One in, one in particular was battling, um, we'll just say a neurological thing, um, uh, neurologically atypical. And they shared that when they're on stage, there's, they don't need the medication. They don't need, it, it goes away. When they're off stage, they need medication. They need there's a great there's a great deal of struggle there. So what is it about the stage that helped that person and me and so many others? And that's what I wanted to know. That's really why I went to grad school. I didn't know it at the time, but that's what I've un started unpacking and have been unpacking for the last twenty four to five years. When did you begin to realize what is working for you and these two other actors might indeed work for other veterans? who probably have never heard of William Shakespeare and certainly never Henry III and all these other plays and Romeo and Juliet and, yeah. and Hamlet. When did you realize what is benefiting you in your life and recovery might also benefit someone else? Right away. It was, it was having an effect on me immediately. And anyone I shared that personal bit about, others would share because it didn't have to be veterans. It was other trauma survivors. It was other um, folks battling, like I said, the alphabet soup were saying, right, for me too. Here's roughly, in a very, very, my attempt at being brief summary of why Shakespeare, why theater, and what it does. If we look at what trauma and um, these, other, these other conditions and behaviors rob from us, we can look at theater and Shakespeare in particular and realize, oh, they give us that back. They give us back our executive committee. They give us back our ability to self-regulate, our ability to determine where our thoughts, feelings, and other forces might go. They give us the opportunity to, instead of going, falling into fight, flight, freeze, fawn, or other, to interrupt that process and get to our higher brain, our reasoning centers, our language centers, our, you know, Broca's area, Wernicke's area to make language, Broca's area to understand language, our, our medial prefrontal cortex and uh, sensory motor areas that let us know we're in the here and now, to keep our cingulate gyrus online to, so that we know, oh, time exists, it doesn't go away, because trauma will take that ability away. We'll go all, you know, what is a flashback, but other than going to a different time and place and not being here. I would argue that that's right. That's taking away our our, our ability to be uh, to to not control but regulate time or to be aware mm -hmm. of time. 
So theater and Shakespeare do all of that. Theater teaches us that if you're beginning, if you have nerves, what do you do? You ground and breathe. You feel your feet on the ground, their mindfulness. You manipulate your breath. Um, in psychiatry, they call it a box breath. Any any smokers, who are people who still smoke. I actually, uh, veterans, a little side note here, a little off-ramp. I get so many veterans, I'm like, yeah, I know, I know, I shouldn't smoke. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Shoulds don't do us any good. What are you doing when you take a smoke break? Like, well, I got to get away from everyone. Great, great move. Yes, you should, because you're feeling what? Uh, I'm anxious or whatever. I can't, I can't be around. Wonderful. You're removing yourself from the activation. And what do you do when you light it? Well, I take in a big breath. Fantastic. That's the first step of box breathing, manipulated breathing. And what do you tend to do? Well, I hold it in and then I do a slow exhale. That's a box breath. Breathe in for a count, hold it in for a count, exhale for a count, stay empty for a count. Three to five of those we know interrupts the, the, the sympathetic nervous system, our fight, flight, freeze, fawn or other, or Stephen Porges fans that are, might be listening, our, our polyvagal nerve response. Box breaths can help interrupt that, or min any mindfulness and manipulated breathing tends to interrupt that and help us regain autonomy over our own experience. And that's the foundation of theater. Mm. So now I'm on, I'm on stage, I'm doing this, I'm mindful, I'm able to be present, and now I'm hyper aware, oh my God, I'm being watched. Oh my God, uh, I have lines, oh my God, right? All these things come in. But I have a community or camaraderie, just like I did in the military. I have other people on stage that are gonna take care of me. I have other people that can chime in and give me a prompt or be there for me. Or hell, I can call for a line if I need to. There's a stage manager that'll give me a line. It's just a play, right? It's called play. So shouldn't we, we don't have to take it quite. So it feels like life or death, but it's not. And that's the other key component to it, to theater. It gives us an opportunity to do something that feels like life or death and survive. And our body begins to trust that, oh, when we go here to that location, that container, I get to play. I get to do something that feels dangerous, but I'm cared for. I'm safe. I'm not unsafe. I'm actually safe or secure, to use a phrase from Jenny Pakanowski, a veteran who, who taught me that phrase. I can do that. And then finally, I have language. Because when we're hijacked, when we're hijacked into trauma response, it robs us of language. But Shakespeare gives me the language to articulate what I'm feeling. And in fact, he does it in such a heightened poetry mm -hmm. that it makes it even more powerful. One would think it, it's limiting, but it's the opposite. It releases us. The other thing is he wrote in this rhythm, and this is my final point, I promise I'll wrap this up, but he wrote in this thing I mentioned earlier, iambic pentameter, to be or not to be, that is the question. You take a, you take a breath about every five beats, ba-bum, 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 right? Uh, to be or not to be, or Richard, now is the winter of our discontent. <sighs> Made glorious summer by this son of York. Right? We're taking a breath each time. We're sharing heightened things. I mean, Hamlet's coming out and asking the audience, should I be here or not? Should I take my own life or, or not? He's asking strangers, he or she, he's asking strangers in the room, what do I do? Do I be who I know I can be? Or should I be what others think I should be? Should I take my own life or should I stay alive in this misery, this pain, this angst that I'm in? And by asking it out loud, eventually talks themselves out of it. I have been there hundreds, not dozens, hundreds, if not thousands of times. So I got it. I, so 
Shakespeare writes this human experience. He also writes veterans brilliantly because they, they were in two wars when he's writing his plays in, in Ireland and in Spain. So he's surrounded by veterans. The same people were fighting then as today, uh, the working class. And then finally, um, there's a, uh, a, a therapist called uh, by the name of Strozier, S-T-R-O-Z-I-E-R. He wrote a, a paper called Trauma and Poetry. And what he found in Activation Warning, I'm gonna mention 9-11, but not in detail. He was working with survivors from 9-11 and the short version of the story is what he realized is the survivors of that when they spoke about their trauma they spoke in iambic pentameter hmm. they spoke in blank verse often with what they call iambic feet broken up taking breaths in the middle of thoughts beginning a thought switching to a different thought mid breath in the middle of a breath very much like Shakespeare you can actually line it up next to Shakespeare and go oh look they're the same and I said it was the last thing but one last thing Lady Percy is a character in Henry the four part one her husband's a combat veteran she asks him a series of questions that are the best description of post-traumatic stress in the English language she wrote he wrote it 400 years ago she asks him questions that Jonathan Shea, a, psychiat a psychologist who worked with Vietnam veterans, he took those questions that Lady Percy asks her combat veteran husband and next to them put all of the symptoms right out of the DSM describing post-traumatic stress disorder mm. 400 years ago. So it's timeless. This, 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 these issues, these questions go over century after century after century. Well, brother, you said a lot. It's just so it's so emotional and it's so rich with inspiration and heartache, but also hope. Mm. Uh, you were recruited. Yeah, you chose the army, but you were also recruited in. And you've said in the past you've never really been decruited. Yeah, they they wired you for war, but forgot to wire you for peace. And there's mm. some collateral damage in your life and in the, in the lives of many of those who served. Yeah. Uh, some stats that I've heard you share, I wrote them down four times more likely afterwards to be alcoholics mm -hmm. four times more likely to inject drugs, mm -hmm. five times more likely to be homeless and more than five times more likely to take our own lives. Mm -hmm. And then along comes you and Shakespeare and Whitefish in Montana and this idea of cry havoc. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Talk about the play cry havoc and, and how both the trauma of your early life and your servant's life and then your recovery afterwards has led to this performance and then this movement to attract others into the fullness of their lives. What is Cry Havoc about? Cry Havoc was originally a, a bit of me search, literally. It was a, it started as my graduate thesis in, in the late nineties and turned into the solo show called Cry Havoc. Um, originally one of the names I called it was Cry Havoc and then what? Because Havoc is a, was, is an actual ancient order um, from even before Shakespeare's day that meant the rules of war are thrown out. And that we, we've almost always had rules of war, even especially, I know I'm speaking from a Eurocentric point right now, and I want to acknowledge that, that I'm speaking of mostly, you know, Shakespeare's Eurocentric and his plays are describing wars in Europe, um, particularly uh, Western Europe. So they had, uh, they had rules of war, but when they said havoc, it meant throw out the rules of war. You rape, pillage, burn, whatever you deem, and it was me. It was it was a different kind of message, and I felt like you know what you said, which is I was wired for war twenty four seven, and but at the end there was no unwiring, 
And, and I thought about how much service and support I had going into the military. I mean, my recruiter drove me wherever I needed to do, prepared me for every meeting, every test that I took. I was prepared, cared for during and after. And then in the military, I had all that service and support. And when I got out, nothing, nothing. I signed the paper and I was out. And I wasn't automatically signed up for the VA. I had to do it on my own. And not everyone qualifies for the VA, even if you undertake that no small feat of signing up for the VA. And I'm not denigrating the VA. I'm just saying, how come that is? Why do yes. we have to, why is it, why aren't we just automatically put in? In any case, yeah, you look at the stats and I looked at it and realized I, the big thing was, is I wrote Cry Havoc because I realized when I started doing the research of what's wrong with me, mm. I started realizing I'm not alone because I didn't think I deserved it. Remember, I was between Vietnam and these two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. This is this buffer, this this gap of a lot of veterans who are considered like Cold War era or, you know, Mogadishu, but people will go, well, was Mogadishu really a thing? You know what I mean? This this era that that's kind of, um, <laughs> you know, lost anyways. But but then on top of it, um, the our stats were not any different than combat veteran stats. Mm. Our suicide rates were as high, if not higher. Our addiction rates were the same. Our homelessness rates were the same, and all of which are higher than civilian rates. And, and even if anyone's listening this with a VA going, wait a minute, we've, we've brought that down some, and in some cases they match, yes, temporarily, but historically. And on average, if you look at as long as we've been keeping stats, we veterans have higher, higher rates of all of the statistics you don't want to have. When I found out I wasn't alone, I wanted to know, well, well what really did happen to me? Because I wanted, I really believed that it was all the military's fault. I'm like, oh, as a military, they did this. And then I realized it was my childhood because I kept asking, I would, I would discover something in making the play and realize, oh, but I had that before the military and that was my childhood. And nothing was meant to find blame. Nothing was to go, look what you did to me, mom or dad or army. It was just, how come that is? Why? Where? And where did that begin? And how do? Because if I can name it, maybe I can fix it. So yeah, Cry Havoc was really for me to understand what the hell is wrong with me, turned into what happened to me, not realizing that anyone else would ever want to hear it. Veterans and, and families of veterans constantly said, will you share this? Will you do this again? Will you share this with a friend? Can I bring a friend? Will you do it again? And it, kept, and it grew that way to where I've done performed it in seven countries over 500 times over the last 10 years. And it has led to a movement not only called Cry Havoc, which is worthy of learning more about, beautifully done, Thank but you. also Decruit. Yeah. And the, decru the final question for our veterans and all of us who are struggling with something. Tell, yeah. tell me about Decruit. It came from a line in the play. I was doing it. The first version I had of the non, uh, nonprofit was called the Veteran Center for the Performing Arts in Los Angeles. And I knew I wanted to do this kind of thing, but I was thinking, oh, I want a Lincoln Center for Vets. But it never came to fruition because lo and behold, turns out I have an M, as my friend Brian Monahan says, I have an MFA, not an MBA. I don't know what the hell I'm doing trying to build a center. So I, I focused on what I knew, which is how Shakespeare can be used as a tool to help heal trauma in a group setting um, with non-actors, with veterans, with non-veterans. So in the line, in, or there's a line in the play near the end of Cry Havoc where I say, as I've already expressed here, I had all this service and support when I was recruited, but I was never decruited. So we just called the program Decruit. And the idea being that it, it was gonna be a, a, 
or if I had my druthers, my dream would be a comprehensive national program for military veterans to leave the military that's as comprehensive as when we go in. Eight to 10 weeks of basic training that's back out. Included in it is mental health care because veterans have much higher ACE scores on average than civilians. So let's just treat them. I don't know anyone who got worse from treatment of trauma. Let's just treat it without diagnosing or without pathologizing it. We just have mental health care. We have transitional classes. We have how to balance a checkbook. We have, you know, how does your military job convert into a civilian job? We have real decruiting going on, just like we had recruiting going on. That would be my dream. But for me to do what I can do, to have small groups, 10 to 15 to 25 at the most, veterans, now we work with other groups, um, of meeting routinely, weekly, for periods of time to unpack, to be able to, as Shakespeare puts it, to speak what we feel and not what we ought to say. Mm. And to give and to find out what is my narrative, to say, what have I been saying? And is that true? And let's unpack that and let's use some other language and tools that you to not only share it in the group, but that can be taken outside the room and used in your everyday life. And what we end up finding was that so many people were coming in that are not veterans that are saying, can we have a version? And we have, we've been creating versions for women veterans only, for veterans of color, for LBGTQIA, um, and, all, and, and really saying, here's the framework, make it for what you need. What, it, what, what, what are here, the tools are, psychology and psychiatry took from us. They took from theater. We were the original therapy, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Gather in a circle around a fire, share your story and create some community agreements where people don't feel shame and and build off there and so that's what decruit really is at, at its core is an opportunity for people to find a container within which to 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 do that to decruit from whatever they were recruited into whether you know hyper masculinity or racism or 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 that my parents were gods or whatever it is that you need to decruit from it's more of the idea being decruit from these things that we were unwittingly recruited into. We have seven questions that tether all of our guests together. We call them around here, the live inspired seven. So I'm going to give you a moment to take a big swig of your favorite okay. Shakespeare champagne or whatever's in front of you right now. <laughs> Sober 10 years. So it's tea, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Good move. I'm glad you put away the, keep the peanut butter and the bread. Yeah, the I did. So Stefan, what's been the most impactful book you've ever read? And and separately, question I've never asked before, but here it comes, favorite Shakespeare play. Mm. Okay, so favorite book and favorite Shakespeare play. Favorite book is The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Hands down. I have to say it because he's my friend, but <laughs> but I would have said it even if he wasn't. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, great book, right? A great book, a great place to build conversations from. My favorite Shakespeare play, this always gets tough, um, but I, it, it still is Richard III, even um, because I like unpacking um, that he was made as much as he was born, that he wasn't born evil, that the world made him. In fact, my wife and I made an pl- uh, adaptation that shows that, that, that talks about, hey, we hold responsibility for the creation of this creature. So, yeah. Wow. Well, going in the opposite direction of that creature, what is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy growing up in La Crosse, Wisconsin, mm. that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Kindness. Kindness. Yeah. 
because I don't know if I do. I can get I go into the trying to please people mode and you know be charming mode and be the performative mode. And I think from a very 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 young age, I remember the way I would uh, assess my little boy was really kind. He didn't harm. He didn't. He didn't. I I would you know let drag. I would bait dragonflies to land on my hand, and I didn't pluck their wings off. I I, I watched them and almost weep at their beauty. I mean, I had that in me, but the world kind of crushed it, crushed that kindness and converted it into, you know, um, I've said it before, but I'll say it again, a hyper-masculinity model, or at least adopting it. And 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 I, and I took it to survive and, and yeah, I wish I had that back. Well, I think you're getting closer to it every day. So as I learn more and more about you, I see more and more kindness exhibited from your life to others longing for it. Thank you. If, if your home caught fire and all living things are out, you have an opportunity now of running in safely and grabbing one item that really matters to you. What would you come racing back outside with? Hands down, my baron, my drum, my Irish, my Irish drum. It's my anchor. I was ashamed of my Irish heritage. I'm almost all Irish, by the way. And that's changed. I'm very, I'm very, I, I've embraced um, my Irish heritage. I, I, I love it. I love Ireland. I've been lucky enough to go there. It reminds me of that. But more importantly, the, the drum is both metaphorically and literally my grounding. It's. I'm glad you saved the drum and I'm glad you celebrated Ireland. Uh, yeah. John O'Leary from County Cork is very glad that you uh, <laughs> came out with the Irish drum. If you could sit in a gorgeous theater and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased who would you like to be seated next to man that's a long list that i'd have to dial down i think i would have to go with shakespeare i think i'd have to, i'd have to know there's so much i have to know <laughs> so whoever wrote the plays <laughs> for the uh, any authorship question people i whoever yeah, wrote those plays yeah we didn't have time to unpack that today so we're gonna <laughs> Mosey on through. What's the best Good. advice William Shakespeare, whoever he or she was, or anybody else ever gave you? So the best advice you've ever received is? I would say from Randy Reinholds, be here, smile, and accept the world around you. Be here. Be here. Smile and accept the world around you. Yeah. What advice would you go back in time and whisper to yourself at age 20? I... I that's the that actually brings up emotion. I don't know that I don't have an answer, but it, it actually that really I don't I'm shocked by how much that's affecting me. I think because I, I, I wish I had been there. I wish I had I, I battle self-loathing and have my whole life. So at different phases, I've tried to rekindle my relationships. I've been so focused on my younger self that I hadn't include my 20 year old self until you just did that now. And so to try and um, I think, I think I would whisper um, a couple things. I would say, get out of the army, follow your heart, and you didn't deserve what happened to you. You're you're a good guy, you didn't deserve it, and stop, stop taking it out on yourself and others. Mm. Man, I'm glad you just put your arm around yourself because. Uh... <laughs> the mistake we make in life is to race through the awkward silence and yeah. fix it with our own brilliance. And uh, I didn't have anything to offer, but you ultimately did. So thank you for that. And question number seven on the Live Inspired 7 is this, 
Stefan, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? Hmm. I'm going to modify a line from Shakespeare's Coriolanus. His name was Stefan Wolford, who hath done to thee and many people great harm and mischief, but spent the rest of his life being kind. Not very profound, but accurate and honest, I think. Stefan Wolford, I thank you for all that you've endured in your life, the train rides you took, the stages you performed on, and the man you became. Uh, it is a kind version of yourself, and we're grateful to have you part of our lives. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for that, truly. And thanks for having me here. And yeah, to spend time with you is is, is nourishing, beautiful. And uh, I, I leave even richer than just reading about uh, the incredible work you're doing and have done. My friends, that is Stefan Wolford. My name is John O'Leary. Take a bow because today is your day. What a gift today is. Live inspired. Well, my friends, if you enjoyed hearing how Stefan is helping our veterans in their transition from military service back into lives as civilians, you'll love my conversation with one of the finest human beings I know. You ready for it? Lieutenant Dan. That's right. An award-winning actor, Gary Sinise, is probably most notable for his Oscar-nominated role as Lieutenant Dan in Forrest Gump. But this role reshaped the trajectory of Gary's life, not because of the acclaim of the film, yeah, it certainly had some acclaim, but because how it ignited a relentless drive in him to champion veteran sacrifices and to ensure that they are never forgotten. To hear the lessons on gratitude and service and celebrate the defenders of our nations, first responders, and so much more, I want you to check out episode 128 with my buddy, Gary Sinise. And if you uh, want to take a shortcut to that one, just join me online right now. Go to johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. And in our most recent podcast interview, we will have a link to the one with Gary Sinise. It's a great interview. You, you won't want to miss it. So my friends, leaders, actors, playwrights, family, and friends, for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. It is a gift. Your life is worthy and the best is yet to come. Live inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come, in the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at Keeley.com.